you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. You guys are getting so much better at that. Good job. I'm proud of you guys. I know that's your favorite part of service right there, and it means so much. Um, hey, welcome. Welcome to The Exchange. I am so glad you guys are here. Uh, my name is Josiah. If I've never met you, stick around. I'd love to just to say what's up and meet you after. Uh, we're in the book of Jonah. Jonah. So turn to Jonah chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand so we can get you a Bible. But Jonah chapter 1, that's where we'll be at. No shame in looking up in the... Uh, concordance? Is that the right word? Concordance? Accordance? Babel, the table of contents. No shame in that. Uh, Jonah's in between Obadiah and Micah. And so you're like, that did not help me. I know. Um, but Jonah chapter one, that's where we are at. Hey, last year or last week, we celebrated our two-year anniversary. And um, yeah, we can give it up for Jesus. Um, it really was a sweet time. Thank you guys. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being a part of that. The barbecue slash picnic slash Brazilian steak and burger is great. So, uh, so much fun. Thank you guys for coming and being a part of that and celebrating the last two years, all that God has done and is doing. And so last week we started the book of Jonah. We're still in Jonah chapter one. And let me just kind of give you a big picture uh, of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is a book where we just see that our sin is great, but God's pursuit is greater. Uh, we see this big picture of Jonah. Jo God says, Jonah, I'm calling you to go to, to Nineveh. That is the capital of Assyria at that time. That's a very wicked and pagan city. We talked about that last week. They did some terrible and disgusting things to their enemies. And God is saying, I want you to go and I want you to call them to repentance. Now, those people hated the Jews. They were constantly at war with the Jewish people. That would be like for us today or maybe, you know, 60, 70 years ago, but just telling a Jewish rabbi to go to the middle of Berlin and call the Germans to repentance. I mean, it's like, okay, I'm going to die. You're calling me to die. And so God has this crazy call on Jonah to call this country to repentance. And if you remember the story, Jonah, he actually last week, he see him get on a boat and he goes in the opposite direction. He flees the Tarshish. You saw the map. He goes 2,500 miles in the direction. He gets on the boat and he goes, I'm going to try to get as far away as this I can. He hops on the boat. And then here's what we see. We see Jonah running and God pursuing. Uh, what we're going to see big pictures, our, again, our sin is great, but our God is greater. Uh, we see that our sin reaches far, but God's grace reaches farther. Uh, we're going to see that whether it's Nineveh and rebellious people who run from God or whether it's religious people like a prophet who runs from God, God still pursues both. I'm thankful for this story because God's like, I'm going to pursue the rebellious, wicked nation and I'm going to pursue the rebellious, religious prophet. I'm going to pursue both. Um, we talked about this last week, but the big picture of sin and grace is this. Sin is essentially running from God. If you want to look at sin and defining sin as God's calling you, God's pursuing you, and sin is running from that, and God's grace is, I'm just pursuing you. I'm, I'm, I'm chasing after you. See, for us, all of us, uh, we'll never really be able to grow or move forward until we realize all of us are running from God in some way, whether that's through even a religious way, whether through you're really just kind of going through religious motions like Jonah, who was a prophet even before this book. We saw that in 2 Kings. Jonah was a prophet, I think, who was just going through the motions. But until you see that, whether it is a rebellion or through religiosity, we all run from God in different ways. And we see that God pursues us. God just is madly in love with us. He pursues us. He chases after us. And this is what Jonah teaches us. We see here in this book, and why we're going through this, is just God's vision for a wicked nation. God's vision for us, a wicked people group. God's vision for people who are far from him. My prayer is that as we go through this book, we would develop the same kind of missionary mindset that God has, that we develop a heart for people who are far from him, whether religious or rebellious, that we develop the same heart. That is our hope and prayer through this. Fun fact about Jonah is Jonah is actually read every year on Yom Kippur. 
On the Day of Atonement, a Jewish kind of festival or holiday, uh, the day they kind of remember just their, their sins and God and his goodness, uh, they used to have a sacrifice, but now today it's a little bit different. But still to this day, and even back then, they would actually read the book of Jonah. And they would say that we are Jonah. They'd read it and then confess and say, I am Jonah. The mindset was we run from God and yet God pursues. And so we are in Jonah chapter one. We're gonna read the rest of chapter one, verse seven through 17. And here's the main idea or big picture. We're gonna look at and talk about the greater than Jonah, what Jonah is truly all about. The title today, simply put, is the greater than Jonah. Like, what does that mean? We'll get to that. Uh, but we're going to see kind of Jonah from the big picture. So Jonah chapter 1, let's actually back up a little bit. We'll read in verse 4. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. It says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. And they threw cargo, cargo that was uh, in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. That's what we looked at last week. Verse 7, here we go. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? Just a ton of questions. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord. Here's the sailors. Here's these pagan men. And they cried out to the Lord, and they said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they took vows. Verse 17, then the Lord had prepared, say prepared, prepared, the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray, and we'll look at this story more in depth. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this incredible and interesting story. We thank you for this true story. God, we thank you for how it's referenced as just a, an event that took place and how it ultimately points to a greater event that also took place. God, how we look at this and we're reminded of your son, Jesus. How he was thrown into the grave for us and three days later he would rise. And Jesus, we thank you for the resurrection hope. God, we just pray on Sunday, today, the first day of the week, that every, every Sunday we'd approach it as that resurrection Sunday, that Jesus, we're reminded that you are alive, but that you willingly gave your life for us. So God, we just ask that you'd be here. We ask that you'd speak. Just like cleanse our, our hearts, our motives, our, the things we've done. God, bring healing. 
And uh, Jesus, we ask that your word would just do what it's supposed to do in our lives. In your wonderful name, amen. You know, I think one of the biggest battles in ministry and in life sometimes can just be developing a cynical heart, a jaded heart, a jaded perspective. I think in life and in ministry, it just a, a lot of ways it could apply to us. Maybe you've, you've had a really good conversation with someone and you kind of hear what they're explaining and maybe it just kind of creates more of a cynical spirit in you. You know, maybe you hear someone share like this incredible God story, all that God's doing in their life and then you're kind of hearing it and going, that's coincidence, that can happen. Uh, maybe you, you're talking to a couple that's about to get married and they're like, the first year of marriage is going to be a breeze, you know, nonstop sex, it's going to be great. And you're like, oh, you're so adorable, you know, all right? Uh, if you've been married for a while. And if you're single, you're like, I don't know what you mean. That's okay. Um, for those of you who don't have kids, you know, there's sometimes this idea of like, well, when I have children, I'll never do that. And it's like, okay, they'll probably do that. Um, I just think it's very easy in life and in ministry to get cynical, to get jaded. I think this can happen a lot. You know, when, when the Lord really grabbed hold of my heart, I was about 16 years old. And I grew up in the church. I heard the gospel a lot. But, on, you know, so my story basically is one day I heard the gospel put in a way where it was like undeniable, where I don't know, I just felt like God was just lifting up this weight that was on my life. Uh, it was a message on 2 Corinthians 5.21. It was incredible. It was life-changing. I'm like, Jesus, this is so good. I'm all in. I'm all in. Do people know how good this good news really is? And like, I want to be dedicated to this good news. And so that sort of happened. And kind of the trajectory of my life changed. You know, I thought for me, basketball was my world. Basketball was my life. I'm just going to do that. I want to play at USC. Like that was my dream and hope and injuries and life. And really Jesus took place and started changing the kind of the course and direction of my, of my life. And so 18 years old, it, I went from, I wanted to play college basketball to like, I feel this strong call into ministry. I had no idea what that meant. So long story short, I'll, I can share more later, but long story short, God had me end up working at a church as a janitor full-time. Um, here I am, 18 years old, and like the world's in front of me in my mind, and God's like, you're going to go be a janitor and work all day for eight hours and not see a soul sometimes. And that was a very weird and yet beautiful season. Uh, it was weird to go to work and literally just clock in, clean toilets and vacuum for like hours and not see anyone. And I'd be listening to sermons about how much of a sinner I was. I'd be vacuuming and crying like I'm a sinner. I'm filthy. Like, it was just a really weird season. It was a beautiful season. It was a very difficult season. I like being with people, and God's like, I'm going to kind of remove you. So for a year, I worked 40 hours doing that, and it's just a weird season of life where uh, during that time in ministry, again, you're kind of, you're 18, the world's in front of you. You have like, oh God, you can do anything you want to do. And then there's some things started happening in ministry where I would see, you know, pastors, kids come to work. They're also genders, but they would clock in and play drums, or they would clock in and then go out to eat, and you'd be like, hey, this is not really right. And you try to like, talk to them, and then you're like, okay, that's not going anywhere. And, you just, and I'd see things that kind of just made me very critical and cynical. And the Lord had to even work on me in that. Like, well, are you, are you serving me? Or are you just this judgment? And, and just a lot of stuff God was doing in my life in that season where God had to purge a lot of just criticalness and cynicalness in my life. You know, fast forward a few years and uh, my wife and I are in ministry. It's about five years. And I feel like we went through this season where we just got very critical in our hearts. You'd see people come to work and you're like, you're paid to serve Jesus. And you're like, this is just a job for you. And you kind of get like, there was almost, you thought it was like this righteous anger, but it was really self-righteousness. And there's a lot of things like that going on in my heart that the Lord had to kind of just purge us out of different seasons of becoming critical and cynical. You know, sometimes you might look at someone and you go, there's no way they'll ever, ever be saved. There's no way they'll ever change. I mean, they are this way and they're not going to change. I think this was what was happening to Jonah. I think Jonah was very jaded. I mean, you read the story and you'll see even, even at the end, he's still a little bit critical, cynical, jaded. But I think this was happening in his heart. He's just becoming critical of others. We know why he didn't want to preach to Nineveh. We read that last week in Jonah 4 too. He's like, God, I know you're gracious and compassionate, and I don't want to see them get saved. But realistically, I even wonder if he thought in his mind, like, you might be gracious and compassionate, but they'll never change. You might be good, but will these people ever truly change? And I think there's just a critical spirit in Jonah. 
I think there's been a critical spirit in me. One of my prayers in that process is kind of like Psalm 51 of just God created me a clean heart. You know, I want to have that just kind of beauty again. I want to have that childlike faith again. I think something the Lord presses on me a lot of times is like, not that we need to be childish, but just childlike. Not that I need to be immature, but just kind of Jesus and just believe he's good and believe he's all powerful and he can meet our needs and not be critical and cynical when I hear someone talk in that kind of a way and go, that is a beautiful thing. You know, I want to get back to that childlike state. You know, there's a verse in 2 Timothy 3 that honestly kind of um, overwhelms me at times, and I pray that this is not true of my life or of our church, but 2 Timothy 3, 5, it says, there's a group of people, men, who walk away from God. They have a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Hear that phrase. They have a form of godliness. Outwardly, they look godly, they look righteous, they look holy, but they deny the power of God. Something I believe that the Lord's kind of just reminded me of and why even for this season we want to go through Hebrews and some of the things that are coming up next is like, God, I want to believe in the power of God again. I believe that God can save anyone, reach anyone, that God can take the Ninevites, the disgusting people who group pagans, did terrible, torturous things to people, and God's like, but I called them their mind. Church, I believe, and I just really would hope that as we pray for people this season, this year, as we approach, you know, the next few months, even Easter, that we just believe, God, you can save anyone. You can reach anyone. You can redeem and restore anyone, any marriage, any family. Like, just really have that belief again. I think what we're seeing in Jonah, what happens to us is he's critical, he's cynical, he's jaded. And church, I believe that this is like God's pursuit of Jonah. You know what's really interesting about Jonah? Um, the story, if it really was about the city of Nineveh, the story should end in chapter 3. If it really was about the redemption of Nineveh, which it is, but it would end in chapter 3, but what do you have? We have chapter 4. It has nothing to do with Nineveh. It has everything to do with Jonah and God's pursuit of Jonah. And, he, and here's why I'm bringing this up for us. Um, I think that this story can re- relate really, really well to us. This story is very unique, by the way. In all of the minor prophet books, you don't see such a small book filled with miracles. I mean, do not get this. Jonah is about the power of God over and over again. That he prepared a fish. He prepares this plant. He prepare, he's just constantly doing miracle after miracle for Jonah. And here's what I want, I want us to get to, and here's what I'm trying to get at is, I believe the power of God is real. I believe God is still at work and moving, and I pray that our church would believe that church. Would you, would you pray with me in that? Would you join with me in that? Would you say, yes, I believe God can still save, and I'll witness that way, I'll love that way, I'll serve that way, I'll believe that way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to evangelize that way, that God can save anyone and everyone. Amen? I really believe that God's like, I want to I remind you of what we're trying to do here. I'm here to seek and to save that which is lost. And this is the story of Jonah. Here's a critical guy, a cynical prophet, here's a prodigal prophet running away from God, and we see God's pursuit of him. Now, why I bring this all up? Because that's the big story of Jonah, but there's always, like, within the plot, there's a subplot. For those of you who like to write or artists, you know that sometimes, like, subplots can be just as important to the overall work as the plot. And here in um, chapter 1, verse 7 through 17, it's like a subplot. Here's the irony. Jonah's trying to run away and flee from pagans, and he's on a boat filled with pagans. Jonah's trying to get away, and like, I don't want to save un- these terrible, they're not Jewish, they're not my people, I want to, I want to run away from this. And then here, he's, here he is on a boat with a bunch of people that are not like him. And God's like, whether or not you're fully in or out, I'm going to do whatever it is I want to do. I'm going to accomplish what it is I'm going to accomplish. So that brings us to Jonah chapter 1, verse 7. So as we kind of walk through this text, here's kind of three ways we're going to look at it. We're going to see questioning of Jonah, the question of Jonah. Our questions for Jonah, the fear of Jonah, and greater than Jonah. All right, so questions for Jonah, fear of Jonah, greater than Jonah. Let's read again verse 7. The questions uh, for Jonah, verse 7. What does it say? Can you read it again with me? It says, They said to one another, 
Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. A um, little verse for you just to write down. If you want to, you can write down Proverbs 16:33. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I don't think this is God's, again, these are pagans. They're not believers in Yahweh and God, but God used this to reach them. We'll just move on, but anyways, sub-thought. Verse 8, so they find out it's Jonah. They said to him, please tell us. For whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? It's a lot of questions. Verse 9. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. All right, there's questions for Jonah. Let's first briefly look at this answer. This is kind of an ironic answer to me. Um, this is a funny answer to me. They're like, who are you? Where do you come from? Tell, just tell us your story. He's like, I'm a Hebrew. I, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and the sea. And the earth. Like he's, just, he's basically evangelizing to them about his God, who he's running away from at the current moment. I want you to see that. As he's running and fleeing from God, he's like, let me tell you about my God, and he's in rebellion. Um, I don't know if you've ever been around believers or Christians who've done this. Um, it's very, it is embarrassing. I, can, I, can, I have so many stories, but I don't want to throw people under the bus. But maybe you're just like out to dinner, for example, and you, ha- you, the, you have a conversation. Someone's talking a certain way. And you're like, I don't really like what they're saying. And the waitress comes like, oh my gosh, they know this person. They saw us pray. And at the end of the meal, they're like, can I just be like a terrible person to the waiter? And that, the, the day's over. And then they're like, hey, by the way, you should come to our church. And you're like, ah! I don't know if you've ever like fe- seen that or felt that where someone like evangelizes amidst like a rebellious kind of gross. It's like, it's kind of hard to watch. You know, I think if you just ask most people like, what's the problem with Christianity? Like, if you ask most people on the street, they just say, well, their lifestyle is a lot different from wh- uh, what they preach. Um, the way they live and what they say is very different, and it's a big turnoff. I think in this moment, it's funny that Jonah is telling about the Lord, the God of the sea and the, the land, and yet he's running from him. I do think that this is the God, I think, trying to wake us up, his church, and saying, don't be just that cultural Christian. Don't be the person who just assumes because you're in church, you must be walking with God. Um, don't assume because you told someone about God that you really know him. And I really think he's kind of pursuing Jonah in this way. And I think this is challenging for me, for a lot of us, that we don't want to hurt our witness to the world. It's like, wait, you're telling us about your God that you're running from? He's like, yeah, you should, you should follow him. Like, no, that doesn't really you know, makes the most sense. But I want to see this just barrage of questions on Jonah. So they have all these questions. Look at the questions again in verse 8. What are the questions? Verse 8, they ask, uh, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So here's the idea of the questions. Um, they want to know, why are we in this? Why are we in this storm? Uh, what is the reason that we're in this storm? And tell us about your identity. I want to know who you are as a person. So let's first look at this storm. Remember, why are, they're going, why are we in this storm? Why are we in this mess, Jonah? The lot fell on you. Why are we in this mess? And we know simply that Jonah is running from God, and this is a loving act of the, of the pursuit of God. God's pursuing ma- man. God's pursuing Jonah. This is a love act from God to pursue us. We talked about that a little bit last week. I can't get away from this thought. I've kind of been haunted by this thought all week. Of just as we run and flee, God's just lovingly chasing us and pursuing us. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, write about his life. He was an atheist who turned believer in Jesus, and he was an intelligent atheist who turned believer in Jesus. And, and here's what he had to say about this. He says, I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I had wanted to call my soul my own. You must picture me alone in that room at night. He says, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. I love this. He's like, night after night in my work, 
my work that was really anti-God. I just could not get away from this pursuit of him. You see, here's what I, I want to bring up, and here's how I want to say it. Um, it would have been worse if God left Jonah alone. It would have been much worse for Jonah if God didn't send a storm, if God didn't send the fish, if God didn't pursue. You know, Romans 1 kind of talks about this idea, but judgment from God can look like him not intervening. Listen to this. Judgment from God can look like him not intervening. I think maybe one of the worst ways you could say we might be judged is God not getting involved. God not saying, I'm going to step in and do something about this. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, listen to how, how it puts it. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each, with each other's bodies. God, God just gave them over to that. You want to do that? I'm going to give you over to that. You see that phrase in the Bible a lot, like God gave them over to these things. I think that could be one of the worst acts of judgment from God. So God said, I'm just, you want to give yourself to that? I'm going to let you go to that. See, Jonah is running, and God's like, I'm not going to let you give yourself to that. I'm going to pursue you in this. And we see that God's pursuit. So here's the questions they're asking him. They say, we want to know your identity. Who are you? What's your job? Where do you come from? What they're really asking is, we want to know what God you worship and serve so we can call to him. We're calling to our gods. This is not working. We want to call to your God. Tell us who your God is. Here's identity. Um, your identity is rooted in what you worship. Your identity is rooted in what you worship. They understood this, that what you worship, is that's kind of where you get your identity from. You know, even today, people who say, oh, I'm not religious, I don't worship God, they're going to get their identity from what it is they give themselves to, what it is they worship. That's where you're going to see that identity, and this is what the pursuit is. And if you notice, what is, what's his answer? If you look at verse 9, read verse 9, it says what? He goes, I'm a Hebrew. And then he says, and I fear the Lord. First, he identifies with his ethnicity, with his race, before with his beliefs in God. That is interesting because we looked at kind of Jonah's heart in this. One commentator said it like this, referring to his answer. They said, since Jonah identifies himself with first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. Please don't miss this. Jonah first likes to say, I'm a Hebrew. Then he says, and I fear the Lord. He first identifies with his ethnicity before he does with his beliefs or his religion. And here's why this is important. We talked about this last week. Jonah, really, he was very self-righteous. Remember, God's like, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes, I don't want them to repent. I, I know that if they repent, you'll forgive them. I know you're gracious. We talked about last week how Jonah's self-righteousness, the way it played out was him being racist. God, I'm a Jew. You love Jews. I, you don't love them. I don't want you to love them. They, they hate us. They hurt us. They destroy us. So I'm not going to go to them. And we see how this played out in Jonah's life. And, and here's why I think this is so important, because he identified first, even in his answer, with his race rather than with his beliefs. The point I'm trying to bring up is we all identify with something, and what is that? Is it with our belief? Is it with our background, our ethnicity? Is it with how much money you make, how beautiful you are, how much followers you have? We all identify with something. We all build our identity on something. We all find value in something. For Jonah, it was, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jewish prophet, and that's where he kind of found his value. There's a story in Galatians 1 where Peter is called out by Paul because Paul says, you know, Peter, you actually didn't eat a meal with Gentiles when the Jewish leaders came into that church. You pulled away. And he goes, and you hurt the gospel. Basically, Peter, we see that he even identified later down the road after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see that Peter made the same mistake as he identified with his race more than with his belief in God. See, here's why I'm trying to bring this up for us today. I think God's saying, listen, um, your race, 
Your ethnicity, your background, that's, that's from God. That's a gift. That's a beautiful thing. That's a sacred thing. But you know what? You know what we have more in common? We have more in common as Jesus Christ. That that binds us together more than anything else. That we have the same belief in God, who he is, his nature, his character, what he's done for us, his death and resurrection. That if we have Jesus in common, we have the most important thing in common. And we talked about this even a few weeks ago, how you and I have more in common with a Syrian refugee who loves Jesus than with someone who lives next door who doesn't. We have more in common with, that, with the, their faith in Jesus and our faith in Jesus and that there's that sense of you worship the one true God, I worship the one true God and we have so much in common with that person because of Jesus. And here again is the mistake of Jonah. Jonah is elevating his background, his ethnicity, his race above his belief in God and the character and nature of God and how God wants to save all. Jonah's missing the point that God was trying to use the Jews to reach all nations. God was saying, I've called you out to be a blessing to all the nations. Guys, God has called us to reach all the nations that we're going to put the name of Jesus above everything else, that we're going to pursue Jesus above all, that that is what we're after. And here's, again, here for us today, what's the, the, what's the practical side of this is you and I can either build our identity on just who Jesus is and who we worship, or we can build our identity on something else, whether that's your race, your background, anything. You can build it on anything else, and you're just saying, build it on Jesus. They have questions. They have, we want to know what God you worship, and he tells them, and let's go to number two. Number two is the fear of Jonah. We see they freak out. Look at verse 10. Then the men, it says, were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, <laughs> the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Okay, the fear of Jonah. Here's what I want you to see. There's a progression of fear. Verse 5, if you read it. They're afraid. They're afraid by the storm, so they wake up Jonah. Then they're afraid when they find out uh, why he's being in the storm. He's fleeing the presence of God. The waves got bigger and bigger. They're even more afraid. And then verse 16, they actually have the fear of the Lord, and that's a good fear. They have this like, progression of fear, and I want us to see this, because really all religions, apart from just, you could say Christianity, their view of God is a fear-based thing most of the time. When you kind of go, I will serve you and worship you, just don't hurt me. Just don't touch me. God, uh, uh, if there's a God up there, I'll serve you and do anything as long as, you don't, as long as you don't hurt me. You know, storms tend to reveal who we really are. Storms tend to reveal what's in our heart. You know, if you talk to someone who maybe doesn't believe in God and they go through a crisis, the first thing they might do is call upon God. And storms tend to kind of bring out what people really do reveal. You know, there's a story of a pastor who went to a, a hospital or someone who was sick, and they found out that they were actually terminally ill. So they call this, this pastor and say, can you please come visit? I am terminally ill. Uh, I only have maybe a few days to live according to the doctor. The pastor shows up, and he gets there, and he finds the guy, and the guy goes, I'm so sorry I called you to come out tonight. I know it's late. He goes, actually, the hospital put the wrong results in the wrong box. That's not mine. I'm not terminally ill, and so I don't have any more questions about God or life or death. Don't worry about that. He's like, in light, of, in light of finding out that you're not terminally ill, like you don't have to think about your eternity anymore? He goes, no, I mean, I'll, I'll get to that when, I, when I'm going to deal with it. 
And it's one of those things that people do this, like we put this off, these big questions until the storm. We put off the questions about God and life and death until there's something traumatic, right? I, people can do this like in airplanes. I can kind of sometimes do this in airplanes where you hit turbulence, like, dear God, just save my airplane and I will, I'm yours, you're, you already know I'm yours, right? Like I sometimes will pray the prayer of like Abraham, like if there's 20 righteous, will you spare the airplane? If there's 10 righteous, God, will you spare the airplane? Like, sometimes I walk through this in my mind and I just think a lot of times crisis or storms reveal what's really going on in our heart. Do we worship God because we love him and he loves us because he's amazing, he's good. Do we worship God because we're just afraid of him? If you notice in verse 14, they go, as they're about to throw him over, they go, God, please don't charge us with this sin, with, this, with us throwing him over. They're just so petrified. They have the fear of God in their life. Again, many people only get religious when they're in trouble. Here's the thing I want you to, and I to see. If you've ever said to God, God, I'll give you my life, I'll give you my life, I'll give you everything and anything if you just do this one thing. That is a fear-based thing. If you say, God, I'll give you whatever it is you want, I'll give you all of me, as long as we're spared and we're alive. That is something, that is a conditional prayer. If you say, God, I will do this if, that is not a true prayer of repentance or faith. Here's what it should look like. God, I'll give you my life, period. Not if you do this, if you answer my prayer, if you meet my needs. See, the idea is I'm going to come to God and say, God, I give you all of me, period. This is it. I give you all of me. See, it's sad when you meet people who they only become spiritual in a moment of crisis, and you're going, no, God does not want you to have that kind of relationship with him. It's crisis. I call upon him. I seek him a lot during the season of lack, and then that's done, and I stop seeking God, and this is what the sailors were doing, and this is not a true, like, right kind of fear and fear of God. You see, there is a verse in Psalm 130. There's a right kind of fear. And I want to read this verse to you because this is so good. Psalm 130, verse 4, it says, uh, There is forgiveness with you. You have forgiven me. Therefore, I fear you. This is so interesting. Do you hear this? He goes, There is forgiveness with you. You've forgiven me, so I fear you. Fear is really out of like a response of who God is in, a, in this healthy way. God, you're God. You have the power and authority to, with one word, forgive my sins. I fear you. It's that, that sense of awe and wonder and amazement and love and submit. It's not this fear of the wrath of God. It's this fear of the love of God. I think you can either have the fear of the wrath of God or you can have the fear of just God's love is so good and so overwhelming it causes me to fear. I think there's a question people ask and they go, if God is so good and God is so loving, why would he ever send someone to hell? And I think the question we should be asking, if God is so just and God is so holy, why would he ever allow someone into heaven? And I think if you can kind of change your perspective, it kind of pre presents a different kind of fear in your heart about God and who God is. You see, these men were not even sure if God would hear their prayer. They're not sure how to approach him. They're, they're just afraid. They're totally afraid. What does 1 John 4 tell us that for you and I, how to love God, fear God? Here's what it says. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. It's really interesting how there's kind of like that, that, that split, like it seems like the Bible speaks out of both, don't fear, but have fear. You know, it's really interesting that you and I are to fear God, but not this fear that involves torment. It's this fear out of this God's love and God's grace and God's pursuit. And I want you to see something. It says in verse 16, they were exceedingly afraid when, when the storm stopped. That is so interesting to me. If you would like circle that, take note of that. When were they the most afraid? When everything was calm. And that says a lot, a lot about who God is and who they are. They go, oh my gosh, wait, this guy who's just thrown into the water, his God is the true God, the one true God. Everything he said happened. It's calm. And they were more afraid of the calmness and of the peace than they were of the storm. They were exceedingly afraid of the Lord. 
They have the fear of the Lord. They actually now at this point have like the right kind of fear, not just fear of the storm and God delivers, but oh, this really is God. And now there's this right kind of fear. Here's, here's what we see happen. It says they literally, verse 16, it says they make vows and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord. You know, when, when you read about this, most Bible scholars will say this is a genuine conversion. The sailors, the pagan sailors that were far from God, that they're, you know, worshiping their own gods, their own idols. They actually, it says, what is it? It says they make a sacrifice to the Lord, to Yahweh. They make a sacrifice to Yahweh and they make vows. This seems to be a genuine conversion, a genuine belief in God. And here's a guy who's trying to run away from that. And now God's saving this whole ship. Now, after the fact, they're born again and serving God. You know, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Here's what they're doing. They've turned from their idols to serve the one true God. They serve, they, they serve their pagan gods, and now they're offering a sacrifice to Yahweh, to the Lord, to Jehovah. They're saying, you are the one true God. It seems by this moment, by the story, by what's happening is they had a genuine conversion. And here's what I want. Again, I don't know what kind of fear you have in God. I don't know if this is torment fear. Oh, if I do this, then God will do this to me. Or I don't know if you have this fear of just the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God. You go, God, you've been so good to me. How could I not be in awe and wonder of you? How could I not give everything I have to you? You are God, I'm not. The, see, there's a different, there's a right kind of fear and there's a religious kind of fear. We're trying to avoid the religious kind of fear. If you deliver me, God, then I will serve you. No, I will serve you, period. I will, after, and here's, you know, you've heard of like foxhole conversions, right? Where like, there's a guy in a battle and they, their life is like, they might, they might die, so they cry out to God and, and then they go, oh, we're saved and we're not going to really serve God now because we're saved. Here's the idea. They were saved and now they're serving God. This is not some fake conversion. This is a real, genuine, they're serving God after the fact that he delivered them. And verse 17 moves on and we'll look at this. We'll see the greater than Jonah. Verse 17, it says, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The greater than Jonah. By the way, we kind of went over this verse on purpose, but verse 12, what did Jonah say to them? In verse 12, we'll read it again. He says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great temptest is because of me. I want to ask this question because there's a big dialogue. Did Jonah really like give his life for these people out of like just good conscience, good spirit? Was Jonah kind of throwing in the towel like, I just want to die. Just throw me in. I don't care if I live. Like there's a lot of debate among scholars. Was he just like a terrible guy who's like, I just wish I was dead. Throw me in the water and you'll be fine. We really don't know. It's probably somewhere in the middle, but here's what we do know. Jonah seems to understand this idea that if I die, you live. If I live, you die. Jonah seems to get the idea that he needs to be a substitute. Jonah's kind of going, throw me in. This is my fault. It's because of me. And you know what? If I be thrown in, the waves will be calmed down. You will live. So Jonah, whether or not we know he has a great motive or a terrible motive, we don't know. But here's what we do know. Jonah understands that he needs to be a substitute. Jonah understands that he's going to be a sacrifice for these people to live. Whether or not we know it's a good motive or not, we don't really know. But we do know this. He goes, I'll be thrown in and you'll live. This is the first time we kind of see Jonah actually showing that he cares about someone else other than himself. This is incredible. This might be the first of repentance, but not really, we're not really sure. But Jonah's like, I actually care about you. If, if I die, you will live. And so you know what? I'm going to be thrown in. He thinks he'll be thrown in. He'll die. They'll live. And this is the pattern of substitution. And, and here's why I bring this up. Obviously, this will speak of Jesus in profound ways. You throw me in. I will die. You will live. You know, if I live, you die. But if I die, you live. And this pattern of substitution that's constantly repeated in the Bible is repeated here. You know, if you compare Jonah chapter 1 with Mark 4, I mentioned this last week, but we'll show it. It is uncanny. 
Jonah 1 and Mark 4 are essentially the same story. We'll put up the points here. Listen, uh, Jonah and Jesus, they're both in a boat. They're both overtaken in a storm. They're both asleep in the storm. Both boats have sailors who say they're going to perish. Both went to Jonah and Jesus and said, we're going to die. Uh, both have a miraculous intervention by God and the sea is calmed. Both groups of sailors were even more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. Both times, once the sea is calmed, they go, oh my goodness, who's in our boat? Oh my goodness, who, what God does Jonah serve? Both were more terrified. When you read the story, it's literally almost paralleled exactly verbatim, but there is a difference. Jonah was thrown in. Jesus just spoke to the storm. Jonah had to be thrown in for the storm to stop, but Jesus had to speak to it. And I do want to say, that, say this, though, because Jesus knew that one day he would be thrown in. One day he would be thrown in so the ultimate storm of sin, of hell, and death would be stopped. Jesus, for the disciples, could speak it and say, storm, be calm, be still. But later he knows I would have to be thrown in ultimately for the storm of storms to end, for the storms of storms to come to an end. See, if you would, turn with me to Matthew 12, because this story of Jonah is something that Jesus looks back to, and, and there's several teaching points from this, but Matthew 12, it's an incredible story. Matthew chapter 12, listen to what Jesus says about this in verse 38. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Here's what Jesus says about Jonah, and it really comes from a question from the Pharisees. So Matthew 12, verse 38. He says, some of the scribes and Pharisees, they answered saying, teacher to Jesus, teacher, Jesus, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. But Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Wow. Do, do you hear this? I want you to see what Jesus is doing. He goes, look, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Look at Jonah. Jonah was thrown into the sea for three days and three nights. And Jesus is speaking now of his death and resurrection. He goes, you will kill me. You will crucify me. You'll throw me also into this grave. And I'll be dead for three days and three nights. But just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will I be three days and three nights in the belly or the heart of the earth. And just like Jonah came out of the fish, Jesus is like, I'll also come out. And he goes, you know what? The men of Nineveh are actually going to judge you because they repented. You're, you haven't repented yet. You have a greater than Jonah. A greater than Jonah is here, and you still haven't repented. You still miss the point. You want a sign? The sign is the death and resurrection of me. Just like Jonah, in a sense, died, went into this whale. We'll talk about that next week, and he calls it like hell. Jonah's like, I'm in hell. He thinks he's in hell. And then you see Jesus going, and you know what? I will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, and I will rise. I will give you the sign of the resurrection of me. The, the sign is the resurrection of Jonah. And Jonah, really, the story of Jonah, when you go to Jonah 1 and you read this, do we not see that God is trying to set up this pattern of death and resurrection? God is trying to set up this pattern of, you know what, die on someone else's behalf so they can live. God has set up this pattern over and over again. Now, Jonah did it reluctantly, not willingly. Jesus did it willingly. Jesus is like, I'm the greater than Jonah. I'm the one who does this out of love for you, not out of reluctance. I'm the one who does this so you can live. You see, we have the greater than Jonah. Jonah 1 is really pointing to Jesus. This idea of a guy in a boat in a storm this is really referring to just how Jesus would one day, again, be thrown into the storm of storms, of, of sin, of death, so you and I can live. Jesus is like, I'm the greater than Jonah. We'll throw up here really quick, just 
Jonah compare and contrast. This is absolutely incredible. Um, if you look at this story, listen, Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord. Jesus came to bring the Lord's presence. Jonah was a sinner who ran from God. Jesus is the God who runs after sinners. Jonah came as a Hebrew sinner. Jesus came as a Hebrew savior. Jonah slept in a storm, a stormy boat because he was overwhelmed. Jesus slept in a stormy boat because he was at peace. Jonah could not command a storm to calm. Jesus commanded a storm to calm. Jonah was thrown into a sea to appease the wrath of God. Jesus was thrown into the grave to appease the wrath of God. Pagans sought to save Jonah's life. Pagans sought to end Jesus' life. Because of Jonah, some were saved from one nation. But because of Jesus, multitudes are saved from every nation. Amen. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Jonah came only because he had to. Jesus came because he wanted to. Jonah needed a savior. Jesus uh, is Jonah's savior. This idea of Jonah and Jesus, he's like, I'm the greater than Jonah. The Jonah, the prophet, the rebellious prodigal prophet that ran from the call of God, that ran from saving a nation. Well, listen, I'm the greater than Jonah. That I run to it. I run to the wickedness. I run into the rebellion. I willingly go into this sea. I willingly go into death. You don't have to throw me in. I go willingly. See, Jesus is the greater than Jonah. Do you notice this? When they threw him in the sea, what happened? What happened? This, the sea was calm. The idea of the wrath of God was done. The pursuit of God, the discipline of God, it was done. See, Jesus is like, you know what? When I died, this, the wrath of God was poured out on me. There's peace now. There's calmness. There's stillness. You can be at peace with God because of what Jesus has done. It is an incredible. So everything points to Jesus. When we read the Bible, we look for Jesus. And Jesus says, when you read Jonah, it's me. I'm the greater than Jonah. We have to look for Jesus as we study this book more. We have to see how Jonah is really an anti-type of Jesus. He's a type of Jesus, but in like a rebellious way. Jesus goes, I'm the greater than Jonah who will meet all of your needs. I'm the one who will appease the wrath of God. I'm the one who will die on your behalf. You need a substitute just like these sailors need a substitute, and I go willingly on your behalf. I am the greater than Jonah. Jesus said, I came to give my life a ransom or a substitute for many. Jesus came to die for the whole world, not just for one nation. We have the greater in Jonah. That's why we worship. That's why we sing him. That's why we praise. That's why we gather on Sunday to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. Say, God, thank you for the story of Jonah, but thank you for the greater story, the story of Jesus, the greater than Jonah. This is who it's pointing to. Amen? I hope as you read the Bible, as you study it, it just, it does something to your heart. You go, every, every little story is really pointing to this bigger story of Jesus. Every little interaction is pointing to the idea of Jesus' death and resurrection and substitution for us, and that is an incredible thing. And so we just want to worship. We want to close out our time by saying, let's worship the one who died and rose again. Let's worship the one who gave his life as a substitute for us. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, come to him today and say, I believe in you. I believe you're the greater than Jonah. I believe you're the one who died for my sins. I believe that you took my place so I could live. And just by your simple confession, by your belief in him, you're saved. Romans 10 says that. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is what we believe. That's, this is what they did. They, they made a vow. They said, God, you're the one true God. We're going to make a vow to you. And that's what we're told to do in Romans 10. Make a vow. To, you are Lord. Jesus, there is no one like you. You are Lord. He goes, you're saved. It's because of his death and his resurrection, your belief and your confession of that. You're saved. And so we want to make vows to him. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, you can know him today. We're going to end our time by worshiping him, by praising him, by singing to him, because he is worthy. Church, he is worthy. Amen? We run, God pursues, there's absolutely no one like him. We just want to pray now. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his death, his resurrection, his life. We thank you, God, that though we run, you pursue. 
That God, though a prophet reluctantly gave his life, you willingly gave your life for us. There's no one like you. Jesus, you are the greater than Jonah. Thank you for that sign. That is enough. That is enough. We don't need any other sign. There was a guy who said he would die and he died and rose again. And we, that is you, Jesus. You died and you rose again. And we thank you. We praise you. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for what that means for us. And Jesus, we are just committed to you. We want to make those vows, those pledges to you, saying we want to follow you. No ifs, no buts. That Jesus, we just want to follow you. That God, your love and your grace and your forgiveness has caused that right kind of fear in our heart. That right kind of awe and amazement by who you are. So we praise you now, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's just end our time by worshiping. Would you stand with me?